All right, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. It's been quite some time, I think, give or take about a year at this point, since we have had someone who I immensely uh, respect and look up to simply uh, for many different reasons, actually, for his his uh, attempt to, uh, of neutrality, viewing things in a neutral manner, trying to look at things in an analytical manner, and ultimately doing his best to see many different perhaps perspectives or angles of the of the same sort of, uh, we could say, grounded basis, if you will. But before we introduce him, Riel, if you would just like to say hi to everybody. Hey, everybody. Super excited to be here. Uh, yeah, I love uh, Mr. Fenton, your work, uh, looking at your website and recently listening to you on the uh, Black Vault with John Greenwald. That was so exciting to see your perspective being brought into that world. So yeah, really excited for this conversation. And if I may, uh, brucefenton.substack.com, in addition to Bruce Fenton on YouTube. And of course, you can go to uh, researchgate.net and find his scientific paper, um, which I'm just pulling up right here at the moment, in which is titled Austra Australasian Tektites as Interstellar Object Debris, Anomalies in Composition, Formation and Distribution. So without further ado, sir, thank you for coming on. And how are you today? Thank you very much, Dave. No, I appreciate you having me back on. And uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for highlighting the recent interview that I did with John. I thought that went really well. That was probably one was I'm happiest with because, you know, yeah, we did manage to get into quite a lot of um, details. And as you say, you know, it's a kind of a, a different, probably different audience to, you know, that I've talked to in the past and they, they responded really well. So I was really pleased to see comments on YouTube that weren't mainly attacks. You know, it's nice when there's lots of positive feedback on youtube you know as you know it can be pretty vicious in the comments on uh, on youtube so uh if you get a lot of positive feedback there you must be doing something right 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 so if i if i may start with this bruce what do you say to those um if if you say anything at all that seem to and i find this quite peculiar they they uh, they attack you which is unfortunate and not your scientific claims and findings. See, mm -hmm. I, I find quite a, a difference there. What, if, if you are incorrect, why not debunk or disprove the scientific data and, and not the person? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think there's, yeah, there's definitely a problem that we see this happening. I'm not just with myself, of course, but where instead of focusing on research, it does seem that all too often in the fringe world, I say, you know, aliens, UFOs, paranormal, that there's a tendency for, for people to kind of congregate around personality and to uh, maybe let let a lot of things slip as well, where, you know, someone's maybe not doing the right thing, but they're allowed to get away with it because people like them. Or conversely, they could be doing really good work, but because people don't like them, they will get kind of, you know, attacked or, or just ignored. And uh, you know, I think it's really unfortunate that we see that happening a lot. And again, I don't say it's just myself. I, I definitely have had that issue. Um, also, I find, you know, what's particularly strange, you know, in a way I've got used to that happening. But what I find a little bit more strange is when it's the other researchers who kind of just totally ignore the work. And you so I find that kind of strange because if I see something interesting from, you know, another writer, you know, influencer, researcher, you know, I, I would kind of talk about that, you know, and say, hey, look, this guy doesn't really interesting. Or, you know, I think there's something wrong with their work. I've actually had just mainly silence from the actual the researchers themselves and that's i find quite strange I don't know well that, that one. yeah i wanted to bring that up kind of get right into it because uh avi loeb was brought up in the discussion and i know greenwald had asked you if there was any communication and it i i believe that you had reached out but just hadn't heard anything back yeah that's that's right i've um emailed avi directly on his university email before and also tried a couple of times going through the Galileo project's main contact box which you would assume is manned right because somehow they've accrued what 200 people that apparently are now part of their efforts as well as a long list of scientists you know all kinds of people in the UFO world who are now you know I'm not sure quite how it works but you know they are some kind of consultants to the project so it would seem that normally people can contact the Galileo project, but for some reason I get only silence. So I don't know what to make of that. You know, other people have said to me, it seems a bit suspicious and um, kind of like you're yeah, I mean, something. There's something funny that, yeah, it's kind of funny. And I have contacted scientists who are actually partnered with the Galileo project. So again, it, it would seem unlikely that all of these people even haven't seen my emails 
uh, and on top of that, wouldn't have mentioned to Abby, hey, look, there's this guy he seems to be writing on the same kind of topic. And as, as you pointed out, it was actually highlighted recently in an interview we had um, on Kurt Tremango's Theory of Everything podcast, which obviously is quite a popular kind of science podcast. You know, someone asked the question, you know, are you aware of um, you know, Bruce Fenton's paper on this topic? And, and it wasn't clear if he was aware or not, but of course he, he took a very uh on the fence kind of response to just essentially just saying that yeah the idea of these tech types which of course we'll go into a bit but that these tech types that i'm suggesting could be um debris from an interstellar object you know he sort of says yeah that's you know it's basically valid it's a valid hypothesis you know they could be they're mysterious we don't know if they're from an unusual comet asteroid interstellar object but never really never mentions my name directly doesn't mention the work so in a way, it's a very strange kind of response when they're saying, you know, me by name and my paper, and neither of which he, re he refers to directly. Uh, and then there's no sense that he's intending to go and look at it or contact, you know, it's, it's a kind of a strange one, because in his shoes, you would think he would be interested to have a look, see if there's anything there, right? So sometimes, you, yeah, you're left wondering, you are left wondering, you know, what is the the story behind that because it's not like there's lots of researchers putting out papers on interstellar objects there's a few now but it's not lots uh, so you would think that if you were really into that topic you would read all of them yeah i completely agree and just on this like i, I just want to be mindful of things that i say but i've also done my mm -hmm. own deep dives on these you know the characters that seem to be in positions of power that are responsible with ushering in this new era especially to the academic world about you know extraterrestrial intelligence and when you look at where they come from and backgrounds and just kind of things you start piecing together it's like oh mm. so that's why certain people are in certain positions of power and they yeah just because i assume this is going to be a public episode so i want to just be <laughs> mindful if, I, of if I may bruce could you break down very briefly without uh putting too much uh mm -hmm. without putting too much weight on your shoulders uh, on the spot what your paper is about in particular for those that are not familiar sure absolutely yeah there's um there's a very old mystery in well i suppose you could say uh it's in geology and physics in in space like, because it is a mystery that kind of goes across multiple topics, but this is called the tektite mystery. And so you have these kind of these glassy objects that are found in uh, what's called, called strewn fields, which is like collections of glass of the same type, you know, there's obviously from, from the same event, and they have four of them so far that have been identified. So you've got the largest one is the Australasian, and that's the focus here, of course, in my paper, and that's a, an enormous debris field that stretches from China down to Antarctica, all the way out to Madagascar and out beyond Papua. It's actually about 20% of the Earth's surface has debris from this strewn field. There's another one, the Moldavite strewn field, which is probably the best known because Moldavite crystal is very, is very pretty. It's a green gem-like um, glass that's used in jewelry and has been given, a, well, it's believed to have by many people some kind of, you know, healing powers or, you know, special things to it. So it's quite popular. And then you also have another debris field, the Ivory Coast tektites, obviously in Africa and the Ivory Coast. And then in the US, you have the Georgia sites and Beda sites, which um, there's an argument there as to whether there's a singular strewn field or two different strewn fields with the same dating. Um, and so you've got those. And then possibly another one in Central America, which is kind of under review at the moment, which uh, seems to be a quite a small strewn field. So there are geologically rare phenomena. So you think about it, 4.5 billion year history, we found so far possibly five strewn fields of the tektites. Uh, tektites themselves are unusual because you've got, uh, well, there's four, sort of four major types of glass. You know, of course you've got man-made glass and then you have volcanic glass. You have uh, like nuclear and well, I'm going to put nuclear and asteroid impact glasses together for a reason. And then we have tektite glasses. Now, if you were to bundle them into characteristics, you would say that the man-made glass is most similar to volcanic glasses and tektites, whilst asteroid impact glasses and nuclear blast, sorry, nuclear blast glass, those, those kind of group together. And the reason for this is when you get a, a high energy event, you know, short-lived high energy event, so nuclear blasts, asteroid impacts, right, you'll get melting of rock, but it's, it's done in such a, a quick space of time that you get part melting right around the edges. So you'll have 
uh, an area where you've got pure kind of glass, which is liquefied, then you've got part melt. And the glass that's fully melted will be very bubbly and foamy. And that's because volatile elements inside of the, the mix will become gas and they will try to escape that liquid, right? So they start to push their way through. But because these are short-lived high-energy events, cooling happens very rapidly. And so the bubbles are trapped. And so what you end up with is a very foamy, frothy looking glass. So anyone who you know has a look at, say, uh, nuclear blast glasses, you know, uh, that you'll see that's very classically very foamy. But the same applies to asteroid impact glasses. OK, so there's, there's other characters there. You also find bits of organic material in there, I mean, like soil and stuff as uh, so a part melt so other bits of stone that haven't melted. Uh, there's a typical kind of like morphological look at them. But if you go across to artificial glass, of course, that is heated over a period of time. Right. So you remove all of the volatile elements and, you know, if you don't want also you mix it very well. Yes, you bubble it down to how you want it. So which is basically without bubbles, really. You don't want bubbles. So you make what's called a fined glass, and that's very homogenous. So the chemicals are very well mixed. Fined is removing of these volatiles and these bubbles. And you end up with, of course, the glass we use on the table, right? And then similar to that is the volcanic melt glass, right? And that's because that is formed in a caldera. It's being heated by volcanic you know, processes for a period of time. Again, you see you get outgassing, you get a lot of mixing occurring in there. And so you end up with a pretty much fine, homogenous glass, right? And so we understand how those, those, those two groupings, you know, occur and why we see a different kind of glass morphology to them, again, to do how the energy is working there. Now, the mystery with the tectites is that if these are an asteroid impact glass, which is currently the main hypothesis right the popular hypothesis i don't want to say consensus because I, I don't think there is a consensus if you look you'll see that um there's always been people who disagree with this and it's considered a mystery there's elements of the story which are not understood and anyone involved in the tech type research will admit you know that they do not fully understand how this stuff is formed but you you can you look at it and find that it resembles the volcanic and artificial glasses it's very well fined very homogenous so very well mixed and yet it's supposed to be an asteroid impact glass. And so this has been one of the major problems with this, this story is that, you know, if, if we're going to say that's how it formed, then you have to give an explanation for how come it's not frothy, foamy, full of other things like soil, part melt. Why isn't that happening? Why aren't we seeing the same characteristics we see at every confirmed asteroid impact site that's got glass, right? So there's been about 140, 40 odd years or so of scientific research into the topic. In fact, the first person to write on, on Australasian tectites was actually Charles Darwin, which is kind of kind of funny local twist to the story, because you know, there's some of these dovetails into you know the human story and our origins, you know, from the work I do. So it's kind of funny that you've got Charles Darwin of all people kind of tied into this story. He actually thought it was a kind of a volcanic glass. And uh, you know, that's since been, you know, kind of stay debunked uh, there's been other theories you know an ancient aboriginal culture that made artificial glass um, you know, lightning striking clouds of dust antimatter events uh, all sorts of stuff it's i mean really whenever there's a mysterious phenomena right you're going to get a load of people throwing hypotheses at them yeah because everyone wants to kind of be the one who's solved it so you had all these scientists they're all applying their hypotheses over time those got whittled away down to basically two and you had on the one side, you had a load of guys from NASA, particularly uh, those space engineers and uh, you know, rocket engineers, but they they could see that some of this glass had shaping from entering the atmosphere, right? And there was other characteristics there suggesting that these were hard, cold glass spheres when they entered the atmosphere and then had been melted again, like secondary melting as they came in. So the front edge melted, ran backwards. You've got these kind of saucer shaped pieces which are called tectite buttons right and so they know that these have to come in at these really gentle angles almost horizontal to the plane of the earth right now that is essentially orbital paths right decaying orbital paths so they're saying well okay so how do we end up with this stuff in a, an angle that matches an orbital path unless the parent body was in orbit and it broke up in orbit 
The only other thing they came to was that potentially it'd come from an angle from the moon and it'd come in at just this right angle where it had kind of glanced along the edge of the atmosphere and then had rained down across mainly southern Australia, these buttons, but also in Java as well. So you've got, so they, they were kind of, you know, trying to figure out where the source could be. And they, they suggested volcanic glass on the moon impacted by an asteroid thrown into space and that then this material, because that explains why it'd already be fined and homogenous, right? Because it's formed in a caldera on the moon. And then it's traveled across to Earth, rained down across this vast region, right? And that was that was the competing hypothesis. Now, there was a lot there that made sense. And there's a lot it made sense of these angles. Bruce, sorry, I'll stop it because it's a lot of sorry, sorry, Bruce. I did want to ask before I lost my train of thought. Sure, with sure. Respects to some of the glass that we're looking at here, was there ever any case where there was a, a, a exhibited during analysis at any point in time? no exothermic cooling or reaction was there ever an incident where that was where no uh cooling down was even exhibited to begin with where it was like how did it even get through the atmosphere or no no i mean all of it appears to be melted i mean you've got okay. there's a couple different kinds but you've got um well if you look in laos and in that region you've got what's called muong nong tectite okay muong nong tectite is considered to be part of the Australasian strewn field. But these are layered chunks. And some of these are like 25 kilos, okay? So then they're, they're, you can see this layering as though the liquid has folded and it's been in a swirling and, and right. And so what they, they came to one conclusion, first thing is like, if you think about it, a 25 kilo chunk is not gonna fly far, no matter what kind of you know, impact we're talking about, right? So they said, well, those would have to be what's called proximal ejecta, i.e. they're very near to the impact site, okay, if that's what it was. So they've got, this is kind of spread across, you've got some Thailand, Laos, uh, even actually some in southern China, right, and I think in the Philippines they found some as well. And that's a kind of a massive area for close to the impact site. So it's like thousands of miles apart. And so they said, well, what kind of impact crater is going to be that big? And said, so on top of that, they haven't found a crater. So now you start having this really crazy problem because you're saying, well, you've got an impact site that seems to be a thousand miles across maybe. And then you've got a debris field that stretches like, um, well, I think it's just over 10,000 kilometers down to you know China to Antarctica. But now you're talking about something that sound like a mega impact, like something on the scale of the dinosaur killing event, right? To try and explain this by a conventional impact because you're talking about now a crater area that stretches like, you know, thousand kilometers or more and then a debris field going back 10,000 and there's no signs of that crater and keep in mind that this is this material is dated to 788,000 years ago and that's really recent in geological terms because you know we know where the impact site is for the dinosaur event right 65 million years ago we can see the impact structure okay in fact it's visible on land but also it's detectable from anomalies in the ocean so they've got the hot they've mapped out the whole crater right 65 million years ago but you can't find one from 788,000 years ago that apparently was able to throw up it's about a, well, some estimates about maybe a trillion tons of debris going up to form this amount of glass and on top of that as i say these huge chunks right across from china to thailand where there's no way that they could have flown far in fact the, the furthest that debris should travel from an impact site is around 600 kilometers. Okay. And the reason for that, and this is like kind of basic physics really, is that, that as, a, as an object flies through the air, it's meeting resistance. So no matter how fast it's going, right, that air ahead of it is being compressed and it's slowing it down. So the faster it goes, the quicker that happens, the quicker it falls. If it goes at a higher angle, it will go into thinner atmosphere, but it has to go over a longer distance. This if correlates to shallow the, angle. Sorry, you know. this correlates to mass, inertia, velocity, all of it. Yeah, because you think about it, because like, the lower you go in the atmosphere as well, the denser it is. Right. So if you go a really an, a shallow or acute angle, although that would seem to allow you to have an object travel further, actually it will face denser atmosphere and it will be stopped quicker. So, and with more obtuse angles, it has to fly much further to get there. So in both scenarios is a massive problem. So they, they came to the conclusion that the optimum angle for distribution of material in an impact or you know a blast of any sort is about 30 to 45 degrees. That's kind of optimal. But even then this will 
this material will not travel much further than around 300 kilometers before falling. So three or 400 kilometers before falling. If I'm, if I may ask Bruce, before you go on, thank you so much for these exquisite and extremely detailed sure. answers. Super appreciative of, um, is there anything having to do with the terms angular momentum being used with respect to any of these um, uh, anomalies or uh, tectites crashing? And what I mean by angular momentum is we see now there's been this discussion in quantum physics, although I say all the time that, you know, it's largely left vague as to what it really is. And I, you know, that's a whole other rabbit hole in and of itself, but this idea that angular momentum, that space likes to curve instead of go straight does that and objects within that that local we could say vicinity like to curve if you will which speaks to obtuse and right angles and things like this is there any indication of that that when the crash occurs it's more for lack of a better term a curvature or curving in motion rather than linear not that i'm aware of okay so not that i've read in any of the the papers that i've looked at but i will say there's like hundreds of papers that relate to the tech type topic. So gotcha. um, yeah, I can't exclude the possibility, you know, that someone hasn't talked about it. Um, it it's kind of amazing actually how many papers are actually on the topic. So once I start digging into it, you realize that so many people have kind of weighed in, you know, so many scientists at different times have weighed into this topic, you know, geologists see from their interests, physicists from their interests to say they're like, you know, the NASA rocket scientists for their own reasons. You know, it's quite amazing actually to find there's you know, chemists as well, the interest in the makeup of these. So yeah, it turns out there's an extraordinary amount of study on them. And if we if we look at the literature, for example, which which I'm appreciative because I know you know your stuff and in, in especially with this stuff, when we look at the literature, is there any institution, body, or agency, whether federal, private, in whether in Europe or, or North America, in which essentially says okay let's allocate and appropriate some funds to this to then look for or is it just kind of like not disbunked or even attacked but maybe just ignored and i ask this because i remember you telling me first time we chatted a year and a half two years ago you had said that you had spoken if i'm not mistaken to someone within stem science technology engineering mathematics someone high up and and they said oh i'm, I'm aware of your work but i'm not allowed to comment on it I, i've had that in with my other work with the human origins work right more yes. so, yeah yeah, um, I've had people say that. Yeah. And, they, and I've had um, people advising me that, you know, I had one guy over in Germany, a professor who kind of was saying, you know, look, so just to tax things, you always hear people say, you know, have you got peer reviewed work? And, oh, you know, it's not real unless you've got peer reviewed. I was talking to this guy and he said, look, you know, I'm a professor, you know, obviously I write in geology. So he said, if I if I want to put through a paper that's even slightly controversial, you know, I will put forward, you know, a team I could try and get as as the most respected people I can on board to collaborate. Just, and I would still struggle to get that paper in to be reviewed. He says, I don't like your chances. You know, I think people have an unrealistic view. So, you know, you can just pen down the paper, give it to nature and nature will judge it for you. You know, it's like, really? I mean, you have to ask how many people that say that have ever written a paper? Right? Cause I'm gonna say, it's, I'm betting it's zero, right? Well, but they'll say, yeah, just, you know, you should have it all peer reviewed. It's like, yeah, that's not quite as easy as you might think, especially when you're talking about, you know, the kind of topics that I deal with. You know what I mean, Dave? I mean, do you, do you think many review boards from leading journals want to hear from me talking about anything with aliens? Particularly, to be honest with you, uh, uh, Bruce, and I don't mean to get conspiratorial here, but I think there's there's cause for for attention to be uh, to be viewed as this in some regards, especially when such committees or peer reviewed uh, colleagues in the field Per, and I'm not saying this is the case, but a possibility perhaps have maybe received an incentive, maybe perhaps financially to ignore work such as yours. I think yeah, we've got a couple of different problems. I mean, obviously that can, I think that can happen and it probably has happened to people to have situations like that. And but on top of that, I think we also have this kind of extreme conservatism in science, particularly around the topic of aliens, right? Or anything to do with, uh, I think, human origins as well to a degree but also alien topics um you know these are really sensitive in terms of people's careers right and you know if you look at some of the guys that have worked in this area like for example a professor chandra wickram singer who for years has been writing on panspermia right really good evidence and stuff uh but he struggles he struggles to to, to sort of get that moving forward because there is so much kind of resistance within the conservative you know leadership of, of the sciences and in terms of the journals and stuff that although you know he's had you know work published he's kind of in some ways respected he's also had a lot of pushback and i know that one of the guys who's worked with him uh professor 
Milton Wainwright, who's a kind of a, a British scientist, who's a microbiologist, said that when Wickham Singer said to him, look, you know, do you want to come and work with me on panspermia? And so he was thinking, he said, I, I thought, well, there must be loads of people like, queuing up to work on this. It's such an exciting area. You know, the possibility of life starting out in the cosmos and seeding Earth. And, and he said, and then he soon came to understand that actually, no, nobody wanted to work with him because they were all worried it would affect their careers. They didn't want to lose out on grants, that they didn't want to be associated with aliens and woo and anything like that. Even though this is solid science, you know, he said he realized that actually almost no scientist wanted to associate with the topic at all. And, you, and these are serious scientists. You know what I mean? This is so this is just me seeing it doing my work. You know, so you've got, you know, astrobiologists and microbiologists who realize that they are in a struggle against the, the powers that be, you know, within the journals, the academic community, the kind of the leading voices who are really looking down on these topics and aiming to ensure that they're not taken seriously. So is that in some way conspiratorial? I mean, I suppose it is because, look, if there's people conspiring for whatever the exact reason, if they're conspiring to downplay these topics, which the public is really interested in. Right. And, and you know, making sure that funding doesn't really go to these projects. To me, that's something is terribly wrong, right? Because how does that make sense if most of the world's public is interested, but within academia, they're like saying, no, 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 you shouldn't be taking those topics seriously. It just seems wild. This is okay. Well, first off, I just want to thank you for, for the, these incredible answers, because I do agree with you in it, to the fullest extent. It's not that there is always, or maybe, I don't want to say ever, because there's been some strong evidence to suggest otherwise, but individuals, a handful of them in a room, you know, rubbing their hands, kind of going, we're going to orchestrate this and that. But mm -hmm. it also seems to speak to this idea of perhaps Mr. Eric Weinstein's disc theory, distributive idea suppression complex. It's not that there's always a coordinated strategic effort, but that there's more of a loose coalition of of you could say for lack of a better term verbiage or a thought form rather or understanding mm -hmm. that's kind of like listen don't push it wink wink mm -hmm. nudge nudge just mm -hmm. you know let it go sort of like when uh you you're your first time on the on a new job and then your your boss tells you listen you can take an extra 30 minutes for lunch because everyone just does it anyways same idea mm -hmm. right so yeah i mean well, look, I mean, in my um, my Substack, one the second one I wrote, I kind of tackled some of this because this uh, with the Mars missions, right? That you know, we go back to the Viking missions. You know, they although the primary aims wasn't really to detect life, you know, it was like to survey the planet, you know, look at the geology, the the chemistry, but they did include, you know, these these tests for indications of life, and so they took along like four experiments that would potentially tell us if there was life. You know, and then when they ran these, you know, the first three all came up positive, right? And you'd think that's like, wow, amazing. You know, it looks like we've detected life. This is great. And but one of those guys, I can't remember the name of it. I refer to a scientist who, you know, read the mission logs, you know, because he was working with NASA and he read the mission logs and he was like expecting it to be like, you know, that they'd be really excited. And he said, but from what the sense you could get was a sense of fear. And that and that the, they had, they were going to have to report that life had been found on Mars. And he said, and then there was a fourth experiment was done, which was, if anything, we'd think was the more the weaker, you know, the more Earth centric one. And that that basically came back as a negative on there being organic compounds. Right. Which is really ironic because we know now that Mars is covered in these organic compounds. But it, so the, the experiment essentially failed. Right. And he said, so where you might think they'd be disappointed, he said there was a sense of relief in the in the mission logs. It was like, we don't have to confirm life on Mars. That, that is wild, isn't it? Because, I mean, everyone would be thinking, you know, that they'd be like so excited, you know, champagne bottles bursting in the NASA HQ, you know, like we found signs of life, boys, right. you know, let's validate it. And instead it was like, oh my God, I think we found life. What the hell do we do? How do well, we that leads to another line of questioning, which is that why are they breathing a sigh of relief? What does that mean when yeah. you go up the chain? You know, they, they, this yeah. is right now. And that's just for microbes. <laughs> just with some microbes not like they they found you know a crashed alien ship or something where you might say well this is really sensitive you know how are we gonna deal this but just bacteria in the soil and they were scared that they were gonna have to say they had found life i mean that to me is just there's something very wrong very broken in our sciences if that was like a scary moment for the team that they thought oh my god we've accidentally actually found life I mean, right. And wow. So that I think tells us something about a really an institutionalized problem in space sciences where they will always look to find the mundane sweep it away solution rather than saying, well, look, there's something maybe here. I mean, it doesn't have to mean you say, 
that were 100% sure, but you'd say, well, look, it really looks like there's life. Let's confirm it. What did they do? They didn't do any more testing for over 40 years, right? Does that, how does that stack up? I mean, well, speaking of that, Riel has some questions. His connection is a little spotty, so I'm going to ask okay. for him. Uh, thanks, Riel, for putting it in the chat here. Um, so he asks, are we skeptical of the explanations of how these glasses formed? If, um, if the debris field whether defied physics or not, what do you speculate is causing the tectites? Sure. Yeah, I mean, my hypothesis is that basically these to explain, first of all, the fact that you've got these angles which suggest an object in orbit breaking up. Right. That's that's really problematic because the size, you know, if you take it that all that glass has to come from an object breaking up, then we're dealing with at least billions, maybe a trillion or so tons of material. So that is like a big object. So you've now got a really big object somehow in orbit, which in itself is odd because Earth rarely captures large objects. We get these little, you know, car-sized asteroids occasionally. I think it's been like two in our lifetimes, right? That they've said in the last few years, they said it's some really small asteroids that we caught and they eventually they drift away because the sun's pulled, right? So but instead we've got this quite a large object somehow is orbiting the planet. Straight away, that's a bit anomalous, right? And then on top of that, the makeup of the material, you know, if it is a glassy object, well, 70% silica, 10% aluminium, some other compounds in there. We don't know of any asteroids or comets with that kind of chemical makeup. That, that is unprecedented. That the highest level of silica you'll get in an asteroid is 60%. So these are like 75% or so of silica. So, and on top of that, some of that silica would have been lost as it was heated. So it probably was more silica. Uh, and then the fact that it was glassy as well, you've got to think, well, if this was a, already an object made of a fine homogeneous glass, then the only two processes we know that create that are volcanic and artificial, right? So what's the origins of the object? I mean, is it really broken away from some exoplanets, volcanic fields, or is it an artificial glass? Well, this if makes it's an artificial glass, then, well, you know, it's alien technology. Right. Well, this makes me think of, again, the, this uh, this idea of obsidian and this this alleged, you know, and, and our ancestors using obsidian to communicate with their ancestors or non-material, non-tangible worlds or realities. But um, Riel is asking great questions in real time. I wish his connection was a bit better. But um, he says here, could this be part of the gifting fields as per Jacques Vallée? perhaps some type of um, assistance from outside, if you will, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the interesting, there's, there's a long human interaction with tectites. I mean, tectites, funnily enough, you know, the uh, the Venus of Willendorf, or the, um, this, I think it's the first statuette of like this earth goddess, right? That was found with tectites there, but the tectites have been lost, right? They, originally it was found with tectites, right? Uh, on top of that, tectites have been found, <laughs> actually, um, tectites were found at a site in China called Boise, right? And they are found in the same layer as the axes. So they know that the humans must have seen the tectite event and that those early humans went to where those tectites had fallen and those axes are in the same layer. So the, the early humans interacted directly at the time of these events with those tectites. So it was almost like we were drawn to that or saw the events. And then since then, there's been yeah, other interactions with tectites. They've been used as tools. They've been used as magical ritual objects. Um, across in China, they're connected with, with medicine, healing medicine, you know, the tr traditional medicines, right? Uh, in Aboriginal Australia, they are seen as having both powers for healing or harming. Kind of, sometimes people swallow them to absorb the power. Uh, and there's legends there of them coming from space, right? And be, yeah, that shouldn't be known, but there's legends of them coming from space. And in fact, there's one account. Or the, uh, the, the heavens. <laughs> yeah, and in one account, they actually say that the Icemen um, were, showered the world with them when they were trying to destroy the ring-tailed possum people. So suggesting that there was a conflict element to the backstory of the formation of these tectites. And that there were beings involved in this, which is kind of wild when you come to some of the sources that I've gone to, which suggest a similar backstory that, you know, some kind of conflict, a large craft being destroyed, you know, some of the where I've looked and where I've heard things. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting when you hear these stories, which they shouldn't, you know, if they're true, you'd have to ask, well, how do these people still know that so far distant, you know, from 788,000 years ago? 
could that be transmitted downtime or are people accessing some kind of information that's you know either in us or in the fields of the planet or you know some psychical um remembering of these events but obviously you get into a whole other area that science doesn't want to touch the idea of extrasensory perception right that you know some guy could sit in the bush in australia hold a tick tight and know where it came from you know which is yeah they would not be able to handle that idea at all right um and yet we know well i know that people do do things like that in psychometry and stuff you know holding objects and telling you things about where that object came from like, you know i've seen that in fact I, i've done it myself so i mean i'm aware that people can do that but these are again these are taboo areas so instead they would say these are myths legends folklore can't have any basis in reality and then every now and again something comes up like say oh it turns out the aboriginal were right these came from space oh that was a lucky guess right and, and we see those kind of things happening again and again recently i've seen a number of myths and legends that have come true you know what i mean well have been recognized at last as being real i mean even the flood the flood legends i don't know if you saw the other day the uh, i think new yorker or somewhere was saying that it's time that we accept kind of these flood legends are real it's like really like every culture on the planet has one of those flood stories and it's took western science till now to say maybe they're not just primitive fools you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's, um, it's unreal. It, it's kind of unreal. It's interesting to see the ancient texts and things like this, uh, 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 for lack of a better term, predicting what a lot of things are, seem to be occurring now as almost as if there's some type of cosmic clock or cycle, if you want to call it. But that's, mm -hmm. that's quite uh, that's quite peculiar indeed. Um, before we we wrap this up, because I know that uh, that you have to take off shortly. Um, Riel, did you want to jump in at all? Anything else you'd like to ask uh, Mr. Fenton? Well, actually, yeah, I was wondering, uh, in your work, have you come across anything peculiar about the Carmen line and like the the different layers of the atmosphere and any, you know, like how, like just, okay, just the Carmen line itself. Is there anything that you've explored? Um, do, are you familiar with what that is? Not, not familiar with it, sorry. Okay, yeah. so the, the Carmen line is actually the boundary between uh, aeronautics and astronautics. So it's a, it's a layer, it, it's a line 100 kilometers above the uh, sea level. And so mm -hmm. this is the actual definition by what makes you an astronaut when you exceed this right. hundred kilometer line. So I was just wondering when you talk about the peculiarities with meteors and with uh, just things going on in the atmosphere, in my research, that's a line where it seems something is going on that the, the mainstream academia has identified it, but mm -hmm. we don't really know what's going on. And I'm also very, you know, pretty skeptical of just like the whole you know, conventional heliocentric outer space model and especially meteor impacts uh looking mm -hmm. into the electric universe model to explain what these impacts actually are and they're not just giant rocks that fall i know i'm kind of laying a lot on you but i've unfortunately mm -hmm. just had to stay silent during this because of my connection yeah but i'm sorry anyway yeah yeah, yeah so, no I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with the electric universe model i mean years back i read some things on it but i'm not going to say that you know i have a you know expert knowledge i mean so i understand that so the interactions between objects being you know electrical interactions that are happening you know certainly makes sense to me and also you know some of the electrical models for the sun uh, and for what's actually well you know when we look at the cosmos in terms of the way we've had explained i suppose a very simple way in school like for example you know that heat radiates out from the sun and it travels you know, but you sort of think like well hang on travels through what you know radiates through <laughs> what you know and that you know that you have to really sort of question the, the models as they've been explained to us and like how the sun works you know there's a lot we don't don't know i mean we haven't sent a probe inside the sun so there's a lot of these kind of you know things that are taken for granted like i mean i couldn't say for sure that the center of the sun isn't cold right i, I couldn't i can't say that but people would assume that there's well it don't be ridiculous the outside's super hot but they think well yeah but it's hotter you know further out from the sun even from the surface like really after these strange kind of counterintuitive and i just say, uh, black spots on the sun which are cold spots i mean they're mm -hmm. black because they're cold in the yeah. if i if, if i could look into the core it looks colder and stuff like that so there's some really you know it's a, sorry bruce it's almost to your point it's almost as if they don't uh, they perhaps a certain loose conglomerate of individuals in the know relative to others don't want us to look too into something but then also not think to or look to um uh outside of something with respect to look too big picture so in other words always keep us in that in-between stage of constant uh, movement if you will but constant movement of speculation and never conclusion yeah i think one of the problems I mean, if you're familiar with like um the paradigm shift models of uh, 
remember the guy's name, but I know came up with this whole theory of how it works. So basically you have kind of these four stages where you have sort of normal science and then science starts to kind of accrue anomalies. And so then you have this kind of, you know, it's still kind of functional. The model is functioning, but the anomalies are accruing. And then, then there's a kind of a, a failing of your theory is the next stage. And in that you start to get competing new hypotheses come up. So you get a new camp and they want to kind of bring in their often better theory, right? But then they meet human resistance, right? Because we're human beings. We have biases, we have preferences, we have money, right? So then you have this situation where the old theory may stay current, not because it's better, but because it has a stronger resistance, right? So you've got people who are invested interests, right, in, in positions of power, defending the old theory. And so it takes a while for a theory to really kind of transition into paradigm shift. And that, that only occurs once that's failed. So at that point, the theory is no longer functional for explaining the anomalies you're seeing, right? So it essentially has failed. And then, you know, this, this applies in science or in culture and in society, which we're seeing now. I'd say that you know, we're in a paradigm shift because we're seeing the fraying at the edges for our social model, right? So again, but in social terms, those often end up being very bloody and you have actual revolutions and wars. And also, in science, it's more of, um, you know, this groups battling each other through money, through how money is spent, through what papers are published in the journals, you know, through who gets TV time to tell people how things are. So there, those battles are being fought as this paradigm kind of collapses. But in reality, I think that we are seeing that across lots of areas of science, we're seeing paradigm shift occurring right now. And that these, these, what we've taken to be fairly solid models across, you know, physics, space sciences, uh, evolutionary sciences, a lot of areas really have crumbled and that they're being held together with money, influence, media time. Um, that in reality, there's, I think there's major shifts underway and that we're going to see a crumbling. And if we look historically, look, the ideas of a guy five, a thousand years ago to today, most of those ideas have been shown to be wrong. And most of the ideas we have today will be shown to be wrong. So anyone clinging on saying that we've solved all these mysteries is, is ludicrous, right? It's a ludicrous position to take that, you know, oh, I'm sure that we're right. And, you know, I don't drag you onto too much of the subject, but, you know, obviously I cover um, right recent out of Africa and that side as well in my work, right? And in, in that area, to me, that has totally crumbled. I mean, it's, you know, I didn't spend very, very long on it to get to a point where I understood that this was fundamentally flawed and that it was very apparent. Don't go a couple minutes. I'll give you a very quick explanation of why it's just in a couple of areas, fundamentally flawed. Right. For years and years and years, everyone has read or been told that around about 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 or 80,000 years ago, a group of people left East Africa, right, moved into Eurasia populated the continent and so on, right? But first of all, you gotta think, why is it 50, 60, 70, 80? Do you know when that happened? Because that's a big gap. 50 to 80,000 years ago is a big gap. So there's something's not right in that straight away. That should click in people's heads. Why am I seeing different dates in these articles? Uh, and the reason why is because if you, if you look at the geneticists now who are, obviously they're looking at when divergences of populations occurred at the genetic level, right? They can see that that happened about with the U European people, right, and the Eurasian people, about 55,000 years ago, okay? So they're saying, well, this migration event, it has to have happened about 55,000 years ago. But if you look at the, more the physical archeologists, right, they look at evidence that suggests there was a kind of a migration going on around about 70 to 80,000 years ago. And they also look at some genetic data there where they can say, well, look, on the, the female lineage, we have, these mitochondrial haplogroups, we have M and N, which seem to be daughters of L3. And L3, we believe, was East African, gave rise to M and N, who, as they were leaving Africa, these groups emerge and split, okay? And so they're saying, well, that, we can see this clear link. We think L3 is East African. These two come out, and they, they go on to be all of the people of Eurasia. And that's about, but that occurs about 73,000 years ago. Okay, well, that's when you see the appearance of these haplogroups in Africa about 73,000 years ago. So hang on a minute. So did it happen 73,000 years ago or 55,000 years ago? 
right? You, you can't just mesh them together. So in other words, what you really have happening- You're looking here, into things too much, Bruce. Don't worry. Two events. <laughs> We've got two events, right? You've got a movement of people into Africa. And we know this. Why is that? Because you see appearances of new male and female lineages in the, in the genome. Now, the mutation rate is different by a factor of 10. So what's more likely that you have these mutations occurring simultaneously or people walked in carrying these lineages, right? And then you see the appearance of things like the arrows appear. You see cultural changes. You see art changes. Things that point to a cultural group walking in who's bare armed because they've got ranged weapons and they just sweep into the continent. They can't be stopped. You see the genetics move right across west and south into Africa. It's absurd to say these people are walking out. It's absurd. And then you look down in Aboriginal Australia and stuff, and you find that there's people down there 80,000 years ago. The evidence shows they were there. So how did they get there? They flew the helicopter on day one and land. I mean, it, it's absurd. They're getting there before they've even left Africa, right? Bruce, so this is that model has collapsed. And yet Absolutely. I talked to these people, and they, like I said, you said earlier, people don't want to talk about my work, but I would contact leading scientists who say, we know your book. Why do you know my book? If it's if it was so nonsensical, why do it's you so nonsensical? I had an article on Forbes. It was removed from Forbes in about three hours because a coalition of anthropologists told them to take it off, and it was just taken off. Wow! See, this speaks to the, the 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 whole concept of not wanting to, as they say in the old days, pull the rug out from under one's prestige in terms of the the social structure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These people are teaching this stuff on Monday morning. They'll be teaching it to their students. They don't want to look silly. Right. Well, if they've they, got incomes based around this, grants based around it, they put their names I, to this their whole lives. They're very vested. Well, now, there's and, also and other reasons going on as well. Yeah. And in addition to that, exactly, the, the scientific paradigm is collapsing, the anthropological paradigm is collapsing, the historical. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, the way I see it is that they're using science as a way to cling on to their power. Because if we realize that, you know, everything we've been told about history is a lie, well, then we're going to start questioning everything else. The economy yep. is going through this huge collapse yep. and not to go on additional tangents, but everything it's like we're hitting this threshold where everything is changing and it's just a matter of how we kind of maneuver and navigate it like are we going to hit can science be saved in a way or do we just have to hit this like kind of self destruct button and rebuild our paradigms like right. I'm really happy I think it was Thomas Kuhn. Maybe yeah. that's who you're referencing yeah. to, Kate. Yeah, the structure yeah. of scientific revolutions. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I totally agree with everything yeah. that you're saying. And this is I also just uh, plugging Earth Ancients as well, because that's where I've also heard you on. And I really love that program. So for anybody that's interested in this subject, that is another program that is very good with looking into the alternative anthropological mm -hmm. and archaeological stuff. Like we now know that the Chinese were in uh, South America. Like that's yeah. groundbreaking archaeology mm -hmm. that is not getting talked about at all, except mm -hmm. in very uh, fringe, minute uh academics right absolutely i think i mean again there's always multiple answers why something is but i think one of the problems with um when you have cultures that appear in areas where they supposedly shouldn't be is that i think that the the kind of mainstream academics right they have this kind of fear that you know years ago they were quite involved in like the atlantis kind of research you know mainstream uh, archaeologists were there saying, you know, the Mayans, Atlanteans, and that they got kind of burned on that, right? And so now there's this kind of like absolute reluctance to go there with any kind of cultural diffusion. As soon as you start saying, oh, I think I can see some symbols in Egypt that are like, no, you can't, you know, you, you, you imbeciles, you know, you're making it up. And it, it's kind of like that. There's a kind of total rejection. I, I saw that when I did a, I had an article that went out in Epoch Times about Gobekli Tepe, where I was pointing out some of the symbols there are pretty much identical to symbols in Northern Australia, right, in Arnhem Land. Mm. Now, the people, they actually wrote a blog about it, like contesting it. And one of the things they said was, well, look, the symbol that is a complete has got two lines next to it. You know, it's nothing like it. I think it, it's got two lines next to it. So it's so different because it's got two lines. You know, it's like, it's like as if, you know, I wrote the word cat somewhere and then you saw the word cat and someone said, they look similar. No, they're not. They're, that's got another thing next to it. You know, and it's, it's, to me, it just seemed sort of desperate. To where me, you could have just yeah. said, yeah, they're kind of similar. Maybe there's a link. Maybe we should look into that. It, like, it shows how, how low certain in, we could call elements or factions higher up in, in various hierarchies of society globally and domestically are, are stooping to, for lack of a better term, to just, I mean, 
it speaks to this idea of even like in um in physics without getting into detail but i appreciate your passion on this because i'm passionate in the physics realm on this which is that whenever you look at a paper for example there was one that came out of the uh ukrainian institute of electron physics that had to do with you know just viewing as dr sal paez said on kurt jai mungle show taking a new perspective on old physics nothing new but a, a, just mm -hmm. a, fair, a different view all of a sudden the paper got attacked boom 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 but it never never got disproven nor uh, uh calculated to show that the the the, the peer the the publishers were incorrect so mm -hmm. it was it's one of those things but but bruce uh, sir we've had you on for for quite some time now and i think our audience is really 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 going to appreciate this and love this but before you go uh two things if i could just ask you to stay on um, after we're done recording and if you could please tell our audience where and how you could be found uh your Substack, your you to all of it you do fantastic work sir yeah i mean obviously uh, people can certainly go to you know my amazon page uh, they look me up on there and find you know my books are on there i've got two available exogenesis hybrid humans obviously uh the intra-africa i've forgotten exodus the intra-africa theory um also of course yeah the substack bruce.fence was it i think you said earlier bruce is it bruce fenton.substack or bruce.fence i think it's i'm not sure they do it on substack but i think it's bruce fenton.substack give me one second here and i'll get it for you it is um is that right it is bruce sorry one second uh brucefenton.substack.com yeah yeah that's it thanks and on there and what i'm doing is at the moment i'm focusing on techno techno signatures topics or alien techno signatures and it's a kind of a walkthrough it's going to be quite a few articles and laying the groundwork for why all these kind of scurries get ignored and also what the best evidence is for alien techno signatures so far in terms of um well i, I do go a bit into the biosignatures as well and like the say mars and stuff like that you know these things have happened but the main focus is on techno signatures so it will be obviously dealing with the tectites but also with genetics evidence that maybe there's been something happening in manipulation and genetics and also the work of other you know scientists and researchers who i think have done really good work so i highlight three or four other people who i think have been ignored and that they've also have produced what i think is evidence of aliens but i'm leaving it for the audience to decide so i don't put it as this is proof because it's not right there's always going to be a counter argument sure. truth is a standard nobody's going for in science you're going for the strongest evidence you can accrue for your hypothesis and if it becomes the strongest it should be accepted as the theory that's it that's right. science you know we're not proving you're not proving it I'm not trying to prove it I completely agree I completely agree it's again we here's the evidence you know and it's up to everyone's own personal interpretation and perhaps various mm -hmm. interpretations will lead to new discoveries we don't know but we got to get past the point of even accepting that there is evidence by these i would say older more hierarchical uh elitists if you will so yeah. without further ado bruce thank you so very much sir and riel if you'd like to say bye to everybody yeah it was a pleasure and i look forward to having another one with uh bruce and see you all very soon everybody all right take care thank you